Welcome back to Champions of Security. I'm your host, Jacob Garrison, and today's guest I'm really excited about is Shanif Webb. Shanif has a bachelor's degree in computer science from Florida State University, as well as a master's degree in information security policy and management from Carnegie Mellon. He also has multiple active security certifications from SANS GIAC and Offensive Security. In addition to his solid academic background, he has over eight years of diverse cybersecurity experience, having worked at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as a number of private sector companies such as Google, Cox Communications, IBM, Slack, Dropbox, and now Okta, primarily in intrusion and detection roles. Shanif is well-versed in the disciplines of computer science, cybersecurity, and digital forensics. He leverages his broad skill set to solve a myriad of problems related to malware reverse engineering, data exploitation, and cyber threat intelligence. Shanif, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me, Jacob. Of course. And so to give everyone who's listening uh, some background, Shanif's resume is insane. Uh, he's, he's been in a ton of crazy companies, had a lot of cool positions. And Shanif, do you mind just if we run through it and you kind of give some stories uh, or talk about your experiences to help people that you know, might be interested in kind of taking the path you've taken with their career. Sure. Sweet. So I want to start back at what you studied for undergrad. Um, looks like you studied computer science and you took a minor in physics and math. So, you know, pretty, a pretty uh, like math heavy area of study. And, and when you think about security roles, how important do you think it is for people to to understand logic and numbers and have that sort of skill set in their belt? It's pretty, it's a big part of security and part of engineering in general. Um, it it also, people can also do it without having a strong mathematical background or even a computer science background. Um, all of these things can be learned on the job. Um, I just happened to do have a lot of training academically um, to prepare me for the work beforehand. Okay. And, and so yeah, you mentioned that they can learn it on the job, but they're not necessarily required. So would you say there's any roles where that's not going to be a prerequisite um, or even a requirement of the daily job? Or is it one of those things where if you want to be in security, you have to know it? Yeah, so there are many verticals in security, and um, some of them are like in a global risk and compliance. Um, so a lot of auditing and compliance requirements, uh, checking and enforcement. So that doesn't require a lot of math, but it does require a lot of understanding of how things work. Um, so you know how to apply the controls or check the controls and make sure the controls are adequate to meet the compliance standards. Um, Threat intelligence is another vertical where you don't necessarily have to be strong in mathematics or computer science. Um, this reading up on threat actors and what's happening in security today, um, and also you taking that intelligence, summarizing it, and also using it to inform the business on how they should strategize um, their next steps. So, like outside of engineering and outside of um, like security engineering or detection and response, there are a, a number of roles you can take in security that don't require you to be like programmer or a math, uh, a math list. Cool. Yeah. It's, that's interesting. And, and so when you think about, um, think about your path, you went straight into a master's degree afterwards. Uh, and, and so did you, 
already know at that point? Like, had you already decided what you wanted to do professionally? Um, and, and then you picked the degree or what was the thought process for going straight into that? <laughs> um, well, that's funny. I actually never saw myself going to graduate school when I was an undergrad or prior to entering college. Um, but it was, I think, in my junior year of college where I was chatting with one of my professors, they recommended that I would, if they saw in me a good candidate for graduate school, and encouraged me to apply to some programs and consider it. And in parallel to that, I was also um, trying to find a role to, to fill after undergrad, and I wasn't really landing any jobs. So I was like, well, I knew something to do after I graduated. So I made sure I had a, a plan, and that was graduate school. Um, so I applied in, to a number of schools, and I got into all of them that I applied to. Um, Carnegie Mellon accepted my application, and so I decided to move from Florida to Pittsburgh and and pursue that uh, challenge. I see. And, and so you had mentioned that you know when you were leaving undergrad, it was hard to land that first role. Right? I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with is how do they get their first role. Uh, so looking back on it, is there anything you think you could have done uh, differently, like a different approach? Or is there anything that would have helped you land that role? Or is that sort of the nature of security where people want you to have, you know, advanced knowledge in the subject? So in, in undergrad, I didn't know I wanted to work in a security role. I also didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I had this undergraduate degree that I was going to finish with that taught me a lot of things about programming and data structures and algorithms, even mobile app development. So I was applying for just a number of roles that was looking for those skill sets, and it didn't matter to me what the roles were. Um, but it just, so I didn't really have a, a very strong plan for what I was doing, and that's probably why I didn't, I wasn't landing opportunities because I wasn't being very strategic about um, and intentional about what I was uh, trying to do. So I think for people in that same situation, it might help to sit down and look at the roles that are available out there and identify what exactly you aspire to do or be after undergrad. And also in terms of getting experience, try to find opportunities to do internships or volunteer or freelance work to have some, some experience on your resume to be competitive when you're applying for those roles. And so when you think about volunteering, I mean, what would be an example of that? Like what, what sort of places could you volunteer? Is that is that just working on open source projects? Is that physical institutions you're volunteering at? Um, like, yeah, what kind of like, what, what can you talk more to that point? It could be contributing to open source projects. It could be that you are a member of an organization that needs some technical support to help them do things more efficiently or automated or automated. Um, so there are ways you could apply things that you learn to support an organization um, in a volunteer capacity, but still get that experience um, of accomplishing that thing to put on your resume. So after, after graduate school, you ended up working for the FBI, which is really cool. I don't see that on a lot of people's resumes. Uh, you know, was there a, was there an extra security clearance process? Like, do you have to go get a security clearance before you can take that role? Uh, or is that something that, that happens after the fact? Like, what, how did you manage to land the FBI position? Um, well, the clearance process is you get an offer, a conditional offer. The condition is that you have to go through the background investigation and then get the clearance. Um, so they do that while they do the background investigation before you get your final offer. And the clearance process will include 
basically the clearance you're trying to get. It may include a polygraph exam. Also, may, it also will include you filling on an SF-86 form, which is a very um, thorough questionnaire about your your life, where you lived the past 10 or 5 years, every place you've worked, um, if you have foreign contacts, things like that. Um, so if, after they go through your SF-86 and they might interview people to corroborate what you've put in the in the form, um, and, they, and after you pass the polygraph exam, um, then you're given a final offer to come on board. So that's typically how that works. Now, how I got the FBI job, um, I, I, I was at Carnegie Mellon and I saw that the FBI had an info session uh, scheduled at the school. So I I did have it in my mind that I wanted a computer scientist role at the FBI because I saw them posting on USA Jobs, although I didn't see them in any locations that I wanted to work out of. But I was very intentional about planning to go to the info session and talk with the recruiter and let them know my background and why I'm a good fit for this role, um, wherever it is, and be very intentional about trying to get an opportunity to interview for the role. And so I met a recruiter. Um, I'm very grateful I met her. Um, she was able to take my resume and she gave me her card and she took my resume and gave it to um, a local special agent um, in the FBI. Um, I guess he reviewed it and decided he wanted to interview me. So I interviewed and I was extremely nervous. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. And, but he saw something in me and gave me an opportunity. So I took it. License. And so that goes back to your point about being very strategic when you're looking for roles, especially, especially early career. Um, and so when you think about, you know, I, I don't know if you can remember this, but you think about your selling points for why you would be a good fit for the role. Um, based on your area of study, your your interests, uh, were you able to leverage any particular thing, whether it was a particular piece of coursework or internship or or you know like project? Were you able to leverage anything specifically to to be more strategic with that application? I think there was a lot of experience I gained in the internship I did in 2012 um, at Lexmark, and that was my first time ever applying my computer science background to work. I was a software engineer intern working on security projects at Livesmark. And I got to leverage a lot of a lot of dodge I learned about um, reverse engineering um, assembly or disassembly and converting it to pseudocode. So that's very applicable to reverse engineering of malware and trying to understand what the assembly does. And I didn't realize that, but when I was on doing the internship, I had to dissect something um, without looking at any source code to understand how I worked and rewrite it in source code. Um, and so that allowed me to apply that skill set. And, and then also applied in, in my career as well, um, where I had to reverse engineer malware. It all translated. And then the programming skills I learned, C, C++, they also made me very uh, strong in reverse engineering of malware because I could understand what the malware was doing a lot quicker because they understood this low-level programming language, so well already. Um, and data structures and algorithms was also very key for me being uh, very quick to learn in, in this space. I Now, it's not a requirement that you have to know that before getting an opportunity to be you know productive in this area. It just might mean you might have a longer time to ramp up and understand everything. But for me, it was kind of like an accelerator to have that background. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And, and so when you think about the um 
the malware reverse engineering. That's an area I'm, I'm really not familiar with. Is that all done in assembly language? Is that the, the area at which you're looking? Like it's it's those commands like jump move, um, or can you can you talk generally about what that process looks like? Yeah, so malware may come to people like to you or me in an email as an attachment from an attacker, as a maybe it's a binary, so a .exe file, for example. And we might want to understand, well, what does this binary do? So to do that, I might have to take the binary and disassemble the, the bits into this assembly, assembly instructions, like what you described, jump and move instructions. Um, and there are some tools today that make it a lot easier that converts those instructions into pseudocode so you're not trying to read this archaic uh, assembly language and try to understand it, but then it becomes more palatable in, in more pseudocode format. Um, but before I had those tools, I had to really understand how assembly worked, um, what these jump loops instructions were, what the first instruction meant versus the second one meant, where the result went, um, and be able to track the flow of the code execution and assembly to understand, well, what is this malware doing? When is it uh, beaconing out to a, a domain? Um, things like that. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds sounds really challenging honestly to go from the high level like what's going on getting all the way down to the nitty-gritty of how it moves through an operating system or, or through a you know computer's hardware and then pulling it back out to the real world it sounds very difficult <laughs> and so if you think about the like data structures and algorithms that are most important to understand for uh, for a malware reverse engineering for example like is are there certain things that happen a lot? Is it binary search over and over again? Is it is it something else? You know, like what what do people what would be a good first step for somebody who's new to data structures and algorithms and and wants to under you know like study in that area? For in, in malware, I've only seen like really strong use of data structures and algorithms and abstraction in a very like sophisticated piece of malware. And but knowing the data structures and algorithms that I had, that I had learned allowed me to understand what I was seeing in the pseudocode. Okay. I mean, in the assembly. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had a very strong understanding of what that th those instructions were doing. Um, so what I had some more some sorting algorithms that it was using um, using um, arrays and, and vectors and lists. Um, so those are kind of the basic things that you do learn in your typical data structures and algorithm courses. I didn't see any strong like tree sorting algorithms in there. Um, but that might be something that's relevant if you want to do software engineering, where you have to make decisions about what's the best uh, data structure to store information in and also how to sort the information in them. Okay, cool. And so just out of my own curiosity, does does malware rely on like memory? Are there a lot of like in um, out of bounds exceptions, you know, or th things like that, that that it's trying to leverage? Uh, is that is that pretty common? There is some malware that try that tries to work by using shellcode instructions to trampoline um, in memory. So maybe there's a malware that's trying to exploit a vulnerability where it knows um, there's some overflow I can write into that allows me to execute some code in that space. Um, and, but it might be a very small space that only allows a few instructions to be present there. So what the author might do is then, for in that very small space, create instructions to jump to another space that has more um, allocated memory where they can write their larger payload um, and, and run their larger payload. So you, I have seen that um, in some cases. 
but it's also not a requirement for malware to be successful. I've also seen malware that tries to only live um, in memory. So you, you won't see an exe on disk. Maybe it's a Python or, or sorry, a PowerShell script um, that maybe it lives in the registry and it runs whenever you're, you log into your system. Um, so you'll never find a file on your disk, but it is present and persistent somehow. A file okay. so, so it just somehow gets instantiated every time that you log in and it, it'll just spin up when you get onto your, your operating system. I don't know very much about malware, so this is fascinating to me. <laughs> So I can talk about something that happened in a previous place I've worked, but I won't say which, but there was, um, there was a system that had been compromised, um, and there had been incident response processes carried out and they identified what was the issue and they, they took the system offline. Um, but I guess no one patched it. And so maybe years later, um, it was a VM, someone booted the VM back up and it beaconed out because the persistence was still there and it was never cleaned up um, or re-imaged. And so we're trying to understand well, why is this happening? And so I thought the persistence in the registry was able to confirm there was some fileless compromise here, but it was related to a previous incident they knew about. They just forgot to clean it up. Um, so also be careful about your post-mortem action items and make sure you clean things up when you have incidents. Wow. Yeah. Like years later for it to come back and haunt you again. That's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, the imp the importance of of post mortem, and that's that's actually a really good, um, a really good way for us to transition into, you know, your career post FBI. You've been pretty much in in the detection and response area for for about seven years now, and and so when you know, is there a specific moment where you realized you wanted to focus in that area, or or how did that grab your attention so much that you know you you just kept traveling in that direction with your career? So when I, when I joined the FBI, I was a computer scientist, which I wasn't detection and response work, but it was a lot of forensics and analyzing things and translating that for agents and intelligence analysts to understand. So I gained a lot of experience doing that. And Google reached out to me to interview for an opportunity. Um, and I wasn't expecting at all to get it. I just wanted to kind of explore what the process was like and understand that. Um, but when I interviewed, I guess I, I guess I met the bar somehow. So the yeah. interview, that's great. <laughs> um, and in that role, I was on their security surveillance team. So doing that was my first detection um, analyst kind of role outside of the FBI. And from there, I kind of just gained a lot of experience. I added on to my academic background and the FBI experience and the internship experience. Um, so I had this. I was starting to build a diverse portfolio of experience that was very, what I found was very strong in detection and response teams to be, to be able to understand a, a variety of concepts and verticals and apply them in detection and response, I think is really effective for being able to respond to incidents and manage incidents and work with your stakeholders across the organization. That's, that's a cool point. The, the ability to understand not only these technical concepts, but also Right? How do you, as a company, deal with this incident? So, how do you how do you get stakeholders to care? Um, and, and so, what's your what's your advice for that? You know, like how do you work with those stakeholders across the company to to either prepare for the incidents ahead of time, or maybe to handle the way that they are, um, you know, they're they're handled for lack of a better word uh, when they do occur. Um, 
I think when incidents happen, they do care. But I also think it's also just a culture of building the relationships, um, like outside of the incidents, having the tabletop exercises, going over what's going well and what's not. We're currently being transparent about what you're working on um, and what your objectives are and how they align with the business and how they help the business. Maybe it's how they help incidents move faster because people don't like to be involved in incidents because it can be very stressful and wrong for long times. Um, so they're motivated then to do things to help them be more efficient. Um, so yeah, just, I think just building the relationships and communicating and being transparent is the first step to getting stakeholders to, to get their buy-in. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the advice. And, and so when we look at, um, you'd mentioned, you know, incidents can go on for a long time, um, and trying to get people to not have to deal with them as in, for as long because they're stressful. Do you, do you feel like companies tend to invest more heavily in their, their plan for how they're going to handle these incidents after something has occurred, like after they've had to deal with that, or are there, you know, are companies more forward thinking and they're like, Hey, we're trying to, you know, nip this in the bud before it becomes an issue. Uh, like, like what role do incidents, I guess, do, how like, do they affect the way that companies, uh, you know, plan for future events? I think it depends on, sometimes it depends on the sector that the company is in. I think tech companies are more aligned to um, wanting to be operational, operationally ready for incidents. Um, but companies that are more like retail, for example, they may not be as motivated to invest in um, an incident response posture or security posture. Um, so that's one factor that kind of plays a role in the differences there. Um, but in general, I think it all starts with, um, again, having those conversations and tabletop exercises to identify what the gaps are. What, what will slow you down in an incident? And then when you have an incident, um, like using the lessons learned from that, what what, what was effective, what wasn't effective, um, and building off of those action items to fix the things that didn't go very well. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And it is interesting to think about the different industries. Like you mentioned tech companies, you know, they're born, born in software. And so it's probably more at the top of their mind, whereas to your point, like retail or e-commerce, um, you know, they're companies that have physical products that they're selling, like that's their business. And then the software is just a huge um, a enabler for what their actual business is. So it's sort of second in their minds, potentially. Um, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but, but if I had to guess. Uh, cool. Well, so when we look at um, one thing you mentioned in, I think on your, on your resume was when you were at Google, you were working on making sure alerts are true positives. And this doesn't have to be specific to Google, but, uh, you know, in, in your experience, how much time or, or stress do you think is spent on false positives just as in the industry as a whole? Um, and, and how do you think that translates to either the efforts people work on or, or like the investments companies make, you know, how much of an issue are false positives in the security space? Um, it, it can depend on the detection team who's writing the detections and their processes. Um, so maybe, maybe there are checks in place that when you, before you deploy detection, you're already putting in quality checks to make sure the noise will be minimal. Um, and maybe you have processes in place to make sure if there are false positives, those are uh, flagged for getting tuned uh, very quickly after resolving that or investigating that. Um, for teams that don't have the mature uh, structure like that, you might find they might have more noise to deal with um, and they might spend more time uh, investigating false positives. 
And so a, a good way to to know for any organization is to measure it. Um, how many false positives are we firing? How many true positives? What's the ratio? How much time are we spending on false positives? And using those metrics to drive decisions on, well, maybe we should invest time in fixing the false positives or building automations to address the false positives so humans don't have to. Perfect. And so when you think about a false positive uh, in your area, right, in the detection area, can you give an example of, of what that would be? Like, is that a false positive that says, hey, we had an incident and then you realize it wasn't actually an incident or is it is it something else? A false positive could be an alert that needs to be triaged before even an incident is declared. Um, so maybe an alert is um, someone clicked the link in the phishing email. Um, and now you don't know if they gave credentials um, when they clicked the link, but that's going to be part of the investigation. So maybe something that you do as part of the investigation is look at their traffic on their endpoint to see uh, what did they do after they clicked the link? Was there a post request to the website or not? Um, and if there was a post request, then they likely try to log in and give credentials. So then you might have to reach out to the user and get an understanding of what they did and confirm whether they need to reset their password or not. Um, otherwise, automation might look and see, well, maybe they didn't have a post request. Um, and maybe there's some automation that talks to the user on the on the team's behalf and that hasn't hasn't give a reply to yes or no, did you give credentials to this website? Um, and maybe those two things will be enough to automate the closure of that alert without it going any further to a human to review. Cool. And so you mentioned a post request from a phishing email. Is that typically a um, a request that will try to grab a like a cookie that you have and send it over? Or is that um, them actually just asking you for credentials most of the time. And then the user has to take a manual step to go in and enter those things and send it. Yeah, so the post request would occur after you've clicked the link and you're looking at the page in your browser and it may have a feel for you to log in. Um, so the post request occurs when you put in your credentials and then click the login button. It, the post request is sending those credentials to the server um, and you're trying to find that that trail of that activity. Okay, so, so for a... Uh a really convincing phishing scam, you might need to have a website landing page um, that is also convincing afterwards so that everything everything is a cohesive image. Like, crazy alert, make sure you give us your credentials for XYZ company, and then you mimic their, their landing page as best you can or something? Yes. Um, so many sophisticated threat actors might go very far to copy a company's website, and there are tools that looks that look for these um, duplicates or mirrors of websites that are not on the right domain, and then we'll flag those things. But some users will fall for it sometimes. Um, and so that's why we need those alerts in place so that we can capture the people that do break through and, and fall for them. Also why we need the automations in place so we're not always spending time on the people that may click on them but haven't actually given them credentials. Yeah, yeah, make sure that you're only reviewing the things that are actually that actually need to be escalated. Yeah, it's kind of kind of a side note, but I had a friend who uh, thought he was buying a pair of Timberlands on Timberlands website and, and uh, ended up just getting tricked because they did a very convincing job of copying the website. So yeah, it's uh, it's dangerous out there for sure. Absolutely. Cool. So uh, I, I want to move forward into some other career things you did. Uh, I, you've been at a bunch of companies. We're not going to have time to explore them all. Um, but so everybody listening, Shanif, you were at Cox and then you were at IBM and then you were at Slack and then Dropbox. Am I getting that correct? Is that, that the order? Yeah. 
So, so, you know, when you think about what was maybe your favorite part of going through that transition or, or how you, how you navigated it or anything you want to talk about with that, you know, that sort of sequence, you know, these are huge companies that you're, that you're getting into and you're working in these really cool roles. Um, you know, what are your big takeaways or lessons learned from all of those, uh, you know, all those different positions that you've been, that you've had at these organizations? Yeah, I felt like, I think everyone should look at that next opportunity to grow. Um, so my transition from, uh, from Cox to IBM was I wanted to look for opportunities to leverage more of my skill set, And I was able to do that in a environment where we were doing threat hunting for external clients. And it was a, it was a good opportunity to see how things were happening in a lot of different um, organizations and being able to identify ways to detect threats in those places and find ways to um, build automations to help support the detections like getting deployed to all those uh, customers. Um, and then I guess I built enough skill set there that I thought I would grew, I grew enough to find another opportunity. And so, um, and also the pandemic happened, which created a lot of remote opportunities. Um, so I was able to join Slack and explore that opportunity as well, um, where I did similar detection and response work um, that I had been doing at Cox, um, but working primarily um, with software engineer, security software engineers. Um, so this was kind of new to me because um, I got to see more of the software engineering side rather than just the detection um, focus side. Um, I learned a lot about Terraform, for example, um, and building and building that and configuring things as infrastructure as code, um, and that prepared me for my next at Dropbox, where Terraform is used, and also uh, detection and response, basic concepts, Python, um, detection writing, and we were we were also doing detections as code. So we started using Canther and Snowflake, um, which is now this new trend that's kind of going across the uh, cybersecurity space. Um, and so that prepared me for my next role at Okta where we use a lot of similar tooling. Okay. And, and, and yeah, you mentioned this, this trend going across cybersecurity, right? With, with, um, would, would you call it the data lake trend? The, uh, like the correlation trend, you know, how would you, how would you, uh, describe that? Yeah. I, I think what's happening is the cost of visibility and the, the volume of the volume that comes with visibility and the cost that comes with it is becoming, um, and manageable and a lot of the tools that we rely on are also becoming very expensive to support all of that visibility um so i think it's forcing uh companies to look at other solutions that can still allow, allow them to detect and respond um but also store the data in a place that they can use to um still get to it and query it when they need to um so i think that's why we're seeing this trend um but I don't know what the future holds, but I think for now, um, it's also creating this detection as code space as well. So a lot of people are now spending more time making sure their detections have some quality checks. Um, people not just going into the console and creating detections, but people creating them in GitHub repositories and making sure there's automated checks to ensure that they will fire for the right things um, and not fire for the wrong things. Um, so yeah, I see that trend kind of growing and I think it's a good thing to see. And that's why we see a lot more software engineering skills becoming kind of crucial to detection and response engineering. Interesting. And so when you talk about detection as code, I um, mean, being able to, you know, respond to these events and then also save them for later for analysis, um, 
what what are people leveraging in your experience you know like what what um maybe what skills background skills do they have what what languages or frameworks are they using like what does detection as code look like in a more mature organization um, for people who might want to trend in that area as a company so it's not necessarily about the language but it's about the the best practices of software engineering that you're incorporating into writing their detections um so the language might depend on the tooling that you're or the venue that you have as a sim um, so some people might use Splunk and their detections might be YAML files that have Splunk queries in them. Um, for Panther, your detections might be YAML files that also also have Python files associated with them to deploy to Panther. Um, but the framework is also just building the continuous integration and deployment steps. So when you create pull requests in your given repository, um, you're making a contribution, a new detection, for example. Um, there's automated checks that will make sure that the Python file is syntactically correct, that the unit tests for the sample events you have, um, that everlocks will fire when you set them to fire, that things that you expect to not fire will not fire. Um, and also doing some other checks to make sure the metadata for the detection is in the right order. Um, and giving you the confidence that everyone's contributions will meet some level of some same standard. Um, so you don't see a lot of discrepancies um, across people's contributions. Got it. And so, you you know, you mentioned that all the tests pass and the alerts, the, the mock alerts fire when you want and don't fire when you want. So do you think that the like, test-driven development and that software engineering practice is, is really important for people who are doing this detection as code um, process? Just to you know, circle back to what we talked about earlier, minimize false positives and and try to make sure that the things that are that you are detecting are, you know, relevant and important and, and accurate. I absolutely think it's important. Um, I think about when maybe you don't have the unit test to then test your logic, your logic may then be in production and you may fail and you won't know until maybe an important alert has come in and has tried to be processed and there was a failure. So you, it wasn't generated into your, your sim. Um, so it's really important to have those checks before the contribution is approved um, or, or committed to the repository, just so that there's confidence that the contribution will be working when it's deployed. Um, the other aspect of it is there's, there is the peer review process as well. So you have another set of eyes to make sure everything is in alignment too before it's shipped off to the sim. Got it. And, and the peer review process, that's, uh, that's going to be the manual process correct like of someone going in and actually looking at what you're what you're pushing to the repository and giving it that logic check exactly so the goal is to make sure we automate as many checks as we can so the human just has to focus on the detection or as little as they have to um and and also helps kind of avoid awkward or uncomfortable peer reviews where some reviewers might try to be very opinionated rather than objective about uh, what should be changed having the automated checks to make sure everything's conforming to the same thing Cool. So, you know, we've, we've talked about infrastructure as code and we've, we've talked about, you know, this having detection as code. Um, we've talked a lot about, about your professional background. One, one thing that I noticed I thought was kind of cool. Um, it's a little bit of a pivot is you contributed to an article on MITRE's website about MFA request generation. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's an interesting thing, right? People are relying on multi-factor to try to have more secure passwords. And one of the attacks that was mentioned in this article was spamming people with with MFA requests uh, and hoping they get tired enough 
of the alerts that they just approve it. How, how do you, as a detection, you know, person, what is there anything you can do if somebody has then approved uh, an MFA uh, request? Is there any way to to prevent that from escalating into a, an incident? Um. Well, there's ways to detect it happening. So that's looking at someone receiving multiple alerts and maybe a high frequency, um, and maybe they don't deny it many times and then they're finally approved. Um, so there's ways to detect that pattern. And then there may be automations you can make if you see that pattern and you have confidence that it, it should be something you want to prevent right away. Uh, automations to revoke that person's access um, until you've investigated and cleared them or mitigated the situation. Yeah, I mean, M- MFA is definitely definitely trending, right? It's it not not trending, but it's it is a matter of fact of of life when you're trying to have secure login. It's it's everywhere. Um, it's, it's definitely important, and so it's it's cool. Um, I was excited to see your name on that website. It was fun to stumble across. Uh, and I really appreciate you talking about all of your professional experience. It's it's been massive, and and I've sort of you know guided where we're going. So I just want to open the floor up for a second and say, is, is there anything that we haven't talked about? Um, that you want to you want to inform people about is there is there anything that you think is important that you want to cover? Um, we can talk about gatekeeping. Um, maybe gatekeeping entry level people from opportunities in the security space. Um, I I have noticed there's a lot of um, there's a lot of need for security talent, but there's not enough talent to fill the need or fill the demand. And I think we really need to be careful about asking for too much from people who are aspiring to be in this space, but don't necessarily have already the experience to, to be in it. Um, so I think we should, as, as, a, as a community, as a security community, we should be mindful of people who are curious and willing to learn um, and grow and um, take them in under our wings and, and grow them into being strong security practitioners. Perfect. Yeah. And, and and so when you think about what that looks like in in practice, you know, like how can how can either a company um, advertise or trying to do that or, or you know, successfully implement that? Um, and then how can a, an individual also contribute to that process and and say, like, hey, I know I'm not experienced, but I, I want to learn. Like, can you give some just some advice on how we might trend in that direction? So one way that uh, companies and managers can one way they can help in gatekeeping is by making sure that their postings are um, inclusive to people that don't necessarily have experience in security yet. Um, so that might mean being open to people that have that are curious about security, people that have shown an effort, maybe they have certifications and they're willing to learn um, and giving them the opportunity to um, learn and grow on the job. Um, I think that's all I have for for that piece. And then for individuals, um, for individuals, I think we can help them um, by over overcome gatekeeping by mentoring and coaching them and making them um, viable in the in competing for these roles by helping make sure they have the understanding of what competencies they have to understand to be effective in security engineering or whatever security vertical they want to pursue. Um, mentoring them also helping them find opportunities to get experience um, outside of work. So maybe that is volunteering or working on open source projects. Um, and just taking them under your wing and giving them the support they need to um, do more security and learn more about security. So so sort of a, a one-on-one mentorship type approach maybe 
Um, and, and, you know, as somebody like yourself, who's very, very veteran in the security world, actively seeking people who are, who are more junior, um, and trying to show, show them the ropes yourself. Yeah. That's, that's hugely important. And that actually, um, you know, I noticed one charity you volunteer at is, is hack the hood. Um, and would you mind talking about, you know, sort of how, how you're able to help promote, um, you know, help promote security or, or promote whatever it is you're promoting at that charity, um, sort of how that process allows you to, to mentor people and, and give back. Sure. I, so the hack the hood opportunity was just a one-time thing where I, I was on a panel and we talked with, um, people who were very similarly trying to find their first, uh, security role as an entry level, um, an entry level function or capacity and just giving them a little bit of knowledge about our experiences um, and how we navigated that space from that perspective. Um, so I had an internship in the academic background um, and that's how I kind of entered the space. And there's people who don't have the academic background but they want to find a way to um, still find a way into that space. And so giving them options to explore about, again, um, open source project contributions, volunteering or freelance work to find ways to still get experience to make yourself competitive with people who might have work experience uh, applying for the same opportunities. Another organization I um, work with, though, is Blackstone Cybersecurity, where I am a BIC mentor. Um, so in that role, I was you know, I was helping a, a person trying to find their entry-level role, understanding how they can revamp their resume to be really viable for this and find the work they're trying to uh, transition to. Um, and helping them understand what they should be training up on to be more competitive. Um, and ho also helping them just navigate issues in the workplace um, and the, the similar issues that we all encounter sometimes. Cool. Yeah. And, and I mean, if there's anyone who's going to be an effective mentor, right, it, it's going to be yourself, uh, somewhat, someone who's been through it. You know, you've had to navigate, I'm, I'm sure, countless obstacles over your career, right? You've gone to all these companies and each one has rigorous standards so yeah it's it, it's uh great to hear that you're giving back because yeah you're, i'm sure you're a very effective mentor for all of these junior people that are uh you know hoping to enter that security space thank you i, I try to be i try to be very supportive and helpful I hope, and i hope they pay it forward help the next person up as well absolutely well shanif i'm you know i'm so grateful to hear that you're that you're giving back and, and i appreciate you telling all these stories today i think it'll be hugely powerful for people that are trying to navigate a career in cybersecurity and anyone that also wants to learn about how detection roles work so yeah thank you so much for joining us today I really appreciate all your insights yeah thank you thank you for having me jake of course all right Shanif. well i hope you enjoy the rest of your day you too bye thanks for tuning in to this episode of champions of security be sure to come back next week. We're going to have another exciting guest on this very streaming platform. See you there.